0: My goal for the day is to introduce both what emotions are, how to practice with understanding, connecting with, regulating emotions, and the role that both meditation plays in that process and the role that uh, interpersonal connection plays. And so that we'll all, hopefully by the end of today, wind up with a set of tools to process emotions in a successful way that won't involve some of the uh, negative, uh, sabotaging, uh, repressive, suppressive, uh, addictive tendencies that are um, somewhat epidemic in our culture today. So, let's get started. Um, Up until, certainly uh, in the 1960s and 70s, there was an era in psychology that focused on the idea that the role of uh, growth and uh, human uh, happiness involved what was called individuation, which was the idea that... Uh, We moved towards self-definition, self-sufficiency. And there were a lot of psychologists at the time who really focused on uh, helping patients uh, essentially find uh, a sense of self-stability and a sense of... um, Looking for a sense of what was the core purpose in life outside of relationships outside of. the idea was to help the individual move from the family and from some of the social interactions so that the the person in therapy could uh, find a, a purpose outside of the influences of the world around, and of course some of the dominant themes that were in existentialist psychology and so forth really supported this. Um, But then there was a second group of psychologists by the names of Bowlby and Ainsworth, Winnicott and Fairburn and uh, Bayon and so forth and so on, uh, low wall that suggested that um, human beings are social animals. We are packed animals. And that the idea of trying to guide people towards self-sufficiency, to be self-regulating outside of relationships, rather than leading anywhere uh, positive, in fact, played into some of the most problematic and... Uh, Debilitating personality disorders. And furthermore, in the last 20 years, there's been this extremely rich uh, series of both clinical studies in psychology and social neuroscience by people such as Alan Shore, Lieberman at all, Thomas Lewis, all across the board that shows that actually the human brain is set up in the most profound way to allow us to connect. And that really what makes our species so special and what allows us to survive, uh, what gives us any of our, uh, what essentially meets our most innate skills as a species is not that we run fast, we don't have shells, we don't dig holes, we don't climb trees quickly, uh, but what we do do, actually, with greater alacrity than any other species, is we can connect and build bonds in so many different ways. Not just through language, which is obviously the first way that pops into our minds, but we have a rich rich array of nonverbal emotional tools that help us to connect. We are connecting with each other on two levels. The conscious, which is the intellectual, and the unconscious, which is our body language, our tone of voice, our facial expressions. And so, because of this uh, deep array of interpersonal messaging that's happening all the time on different levels, we can construct relationships that are far more durable and meaningful than uh, just about any other species. We're certainly extremely uh, advanced in that ability. And yet, so much of our culture uh, points us in the opposite direction, points us away from bonding, away from disclosing our emotions and our feelings with each other and points us towards a sort of ideal of self-sufficiency where we're told that if we can only accumulate a certain amount of financial um, security a certain uh, accumulate a certain amount of things then we will be safe and happy. Now. We now know from all of the clinical research done by uh, the positive psychologists starting in the 1980s, led by people like Martin Seligman, Sandra Lee Jonathan Haidt, and so forth, that the studies point in one direction, which is true happiness, the people who score well on baseline happiness tests, are invariably those who meet two criteria. What are those two criteria? They're not financial wealth. They're not accumulating a lot of stuff. They're not uh, career success. The two factors that show up again and again, not just in the um, research that was done on a national level, but actually a global level by the World Happiness Report, points to the idea that Those of us who have a group of people that we are emotionally well-connected to and, two, have work that we believe betters the world around us are the happiest. And those of us who don't have those two factors generally score very poorly on baseline happiness. Those two factors, close relationships and a sense of bettering, the tribe to which we are connected, actually, as we'll see, speak to the deepest settings of the cortical brain that we have. So, let's start with the beginnings of the human experience. When we are infants, we connect with each other entirely via physiological emotions. There is no language that we use in the first few years of life. And what we also know is that what is called the right hemisphere of the brain, which has very little language structures, but has extreme connection to the body, is very hardwired to the body through the insula, is using gestures, cries, gesticulations, stomping of feet to connect. To establish a bond between the infant and the caretaker. And so, um, in these two crucial years, this is when the right hemisphere of all of our brains is being wired. In fact, after year two, there's less and less neural wiring going on in that region. Now, the right hemisphere is always neuroplastic. You can always undo relational damage, but the bulk of the neural connections that are made that govern how you connect with other human beings and what your emotional life is like and how you connect with other human beings using your emotions is set very early on in life. The, uh, the sort of the goal that establishes connection between the infant and the caretaker is when the infant has an emotion which is largely physiological, largely embodied. The parent stops, attunes to the infant, which means gives the child attention, and the child sees it as attention. The parent is tolerant and safe, and then mirrors back the emotion in some way. So the parent, if the child has seen a scary dog, and the child comes running to the parent, The parent might, one, make a sort of scared face and then mark that everything is okay by adding a smile at the end of it. And that simple gesture of mirroring the emotion and then saying it's okay is very much the absolute golden aim of all human emotion regulation. There is no point in our lives where that, process of expressing an emotion, being seen and mirrored, and then having that limbic co-regulation, the midbrain and all of ourselves feel seen, feels safely connected by being emotionally uh, recognized, is ever replaced. From birth until death, we need that experience. We never grow out of it. So, um... In this movement, eventually starting around two or three, there's a second process that comes in, which the parents, in seeing the child's physiological state during an emotional experience, fear, sadness, surprise, elation, joy, overwhelm, all of which are communicated with different gestures. Overwhelm might be like this... Uh, frustration stomping, um, excitement. There's this uh, that happens. Nothing like watching a 50-plus-year-old man enacting uh, infants. (laughs) But what the parents also do is they help the child understand what emotions it is experiencing. So, the parent says, oh, eventually when the child starts acquiring language around two, three, the parent starts saying, in addition to mirroring back the emotion, the parent starts saying things like, oh, you're scared you saw a doggie, or oh, you're happy you got a birthday cupcake, or oh, you're uh, overwhelmed because there's a lot of stuff going on. So the parent essentially helps the child begin to differentiate all these physiological states, these somatic embodied states. The parent starts labeling it for the child. And this is crucial. The work of Feneghi and Mary Main and on on, Philip Shaver, what we can see is that if there's a breakdown in this crucial stage where the parent is unavailable or is too busy or is emotionally incapable of reading the child's emotions, or is simply not uh, due to family stresses, financial stresses, or if the child then retains these physiological states and it doesn't know what they are. And furthermore, it starts to associate its own emotions with um, a, a, a sense of disconnection not being seen, not being connected. And so those emotions, rather than being expressed, seen, mirrored, and explained by the parent, some of these emotions uh, remain essentially mysterious experiences in the body where there's no uh, ability of the child to know what's going on. It knows that it's in a state of upheaval, and for a child, emotions, the physiological experience of emotions is far stronger than anything we're aware of, because they're existing in the right hemisphere, the right hemisphere, is deeply wired to the body. And so emotional states, like fear, sadness, hunger, discomfort, maybe they've they've, urine, they've you know wet themselves. Sensations that for an adult are kind of uncomfortable for an infant are extremely overwhelming. And the experience that the parent or the guardian or the caretaker cannot uh, meet is an experience that creates a great deal of feelings of overwhelm, uh, isolation And some psychologists say the fear of annihilation. Literally, the continual state of having emotions that are not recognized by other people leaves the child feeling in this activated body like it's going to die, like it's alone, that it will never get out of that state. So, so far what we've learned is that children use a lot of physiological signals to connect, to establish the bonds that make it feel safe and cared for, and that these are the beginnings of human emotions, and that they are signals to other people. What are these signals telling other people? Uh, We now know pretty clearly that virtually all emotion expressions have to do with relationship, The child is signaling in its emotional expression how securely connected it feels. Sadness is the child saying that it doesn't feel safe. Uh, Joy is the child uh, celebrating the attention it's getting from its caretakers. Uh, Pride is the feeling that the child has done something that the parents or the family structure or even peers will appreciate. Shame is, as we grow into adult years, the feeling that we've done something that damages our relationships with the group that we belong to, that other people would judge us harshly. Guilt is what we feel when we wound an important attachment figure in our life. So all emotions are our way of saying something has affected how securely connected I feel to other people. And we express these states of connection or relationship to other people to change our emotions. We say, oh, I'm scared, I have fear, because I want you to make me less frightened. We say, oh, I feel guilty because we want to be able to express what we're guilty of. When we feel elation, we want somebody to celebrate it with us. So our emotional states bond us And our emotional states also, in essence, communicate how well bonded we feel with other people. So, in summary, all emotions, in most ways, with the sole exception of fear, which not necessarily always has a relational component. You can feel fear about seeing a car spiraling out of control or being in a a sudden... Height or being surrounded by a a scary dog, you might have fear that has nothing to do with your relationships with other people. But virtually every other human relationship is about how well connected we feel with uh, attachment figures in our life. So these emotions signal other people, and they also sometimes signal ourselves. When I feel angry... Uh, due to somebody has done something that transgresses a boundary, it's not just a signal to establish a boundary with that person, to say, hey, what you just said is not acceptable, but it's also to let me know that I need to take some action. If I feel fear, it's not just an impulse to run from the person who's scaring me, but it's an also an, it's an impulse to run. If I feel uh, Guilt or regret, it's an impulse, not just that I'm expressing to other people that I've done something that I don't feel uh, proud of, but it's also an an impulsion for me to, in some way, acknowledge what I'm concealing. So, the uh, the core is that emotional health and our well-being as we grow into adults uh, looks like the following. We have a spontaneous emotion, we express it, and at some point it is seen and received and accepted and tolerated by the people around us. And in doing that, we have what's known as secondary positive emotions. We feel confident, we feel like we belong, we feel secure in our family relationships. And what that allows us to do is open to growth to connect with other people, to take risks, to move on in life, knowing that we have a secure base, people who will have our back, who are there for us. Emotion dysregulation starts when, as infants, we have core, spontaneous emotions, and instead of being seen and received, we get contempt, criticism, abandonment, we're ignored, or the parent who is so anxious due to their own stresses. Instead of seeing our emotions, they mirror back a completely different emotion. We're confident and they mirror back anxiety. We are filled with joy and they mirror back frustration. In that disconnection, what happens is we then move on to negative secondary emotions. We feel ashamed, cut off, vulnerable, depressed, and then our defenses, we close off, we stop making eye contact, we stop feeling the presence of a secure base, and what happens is we become more and more frightened of our own emotions. We become those emotions that we tried to express that weren't received or tolerated become essentially... Uh, experiences that we need to get rid of, because we associate them with abandonment, we associate them with rejection, we associate those emotions with, I'm not going to be taken care of, I won't be loved, I'll be alone in the world when I experience this emotion. It's a traumatic experience for an infant, and it's impossible to the adult mind to really understand how uh, much a crisis state an infant is in when over a repeated period of interactions with an adult, it tries to express its frustration. And the parent, because of their own stresses, responsibilities, obligations, overwhelm, they can't see the child's frustration. And then the child is informed by that, that whenever it feels frustrated or disappointed, rather than express it, it has to repress it suppress it, get rid of it. This is the dawning of all addiction and all of human maladaptive coping strategies in this single exp- set of experiences. Addiction, as we become clear from the work of Flores and Ornstein and Coates people and even Uh, Gabor Mate now, we uh, find that in the general population only about uh, less than 5% of the people have what's known as um, completely dysregulated uh, attachment Uh, attachment styles that are essentially um, uh, what you would call the hallmarks of somebody who's had developmental trauma. But if you stepped into an AA meeting, an NA meeting, and a meeting of gamblers or shoppers, Anonymous, or any other 12-step organization, you would find that about 90% would <laughs> test, and they've done this, I'm not making that number. That, so what's less than 5% of the general population spy, burdens up to 90% in uh, recovery centers. So, when we have emotions that were not particularly well received in childhood, systemically not married back, we develop a couple of different processes to cope. The first is what's known as defenses. Defenses don't defend us from the world outside defenses are to defend ourselves from our own internal emotional states. So when people hear about defended or defense mechanisms, we tend to think that it's about protecting ourselves from other people, but actually defense mechanisms are largely, uh, as uh, Anna Freud first wrote, is about protecting ourselves from feeling something internally, a feeling that we remember from childhood led to abandonment. So... Some of the ways we suppress or get rid of unwanted emotions are very common. We can become people-pleasing. We can, when we start to feel something that makes us anxious, we will present to the world and present to ourselves a different emotion, a masking emotion. For example, some uh, many people find having sadness to be. Uh, very painful, so they'll mask it with anger or confidence. They'll essentially present to themselves and the world around us a substitute emotion to cover it up. We can cut off emotions by if we feel lonely, and in childhood loneliness was an experience that was traumatic, The moment we start to feel any loneliness, rather than learn how to hold it and be with and process it, we'll immediately rush to Facebook or social media or to Netflix. Or some of us will binge eat, because binge eating creates the feeling that there's somebody else there taking care of me. If there's a lot of food, we might associate it with being cared for. Uh, Grandiosity uh, as a way to you know fantasies that essentially if we're unable to fulfill our needs and placate our emotional states naturally we will have compensating fantasies of success and achievement in the world but perhaps the most single constant most uh, employed suppressive repressive technique that humans we use to get rid of our emotions to live uh, to repress and to be, uh, to cut ourselves off from our feelings is thinking. Uh, as Winnicott said, at around three, two to three, if the child is too quickly thrust into the world uh, without support, if there's not a lot of emotional support, if there's times when the child has <laughs> authentic feelings that are not. Uh, being seen, it uses thought, fantasy, ideas, stories, inner chatter, uh, as a way to regulate emotions. How does it regulate emotions? Not really regulate, it suppresses. Simply, the left hemisphere starts going online with language, and we start living in the disembodied thought land of the left hemisphere, which has very, very few uh, axonic connections with the body and instead of the right hemisphere, which is the emotional, physiological realm. So we start to use the thinking brain as a way to protect ourselves from feeling what's going on in the body. And the adult life, with all of our tendencies of intellectualization, rationalization, self-justification, worrying, all of that can be seen as boiling down to... Very often, simply an attempt to create an array of language that will distract us from feeling a physiological state that reminds us of traumatic early disattachments. So this, the Buddha says, the Buddha had a whole name for this. He called this the Asavas, and he talked about how The most of us do not want to have somatic awareness and instead we flow towards thought or we flow towards awareness of distractions in the world as a way not to be in connection with the body which is where all of those pesky emotional states and anxieties and feelings of uh, awkwardness are playing out. So When we're lost in the clouds of thought, when we're completely captivated by text, when we're living uh, on the laptop or on the computer, when we are... All of that is essentially continuing the regime of self-abandonment. The core authentic human experience always goes back to that earliest physiological expressions of what I would argue is the core, or true, authentic self. If there is such a thing, it would be in our authentic, spontaneous emotions, which arise in about one-tenth of a a second. And thought, on the other hand, takes about a half a second to arise after experience. So, very often, thought is, as the Buddha said in dependent co-arising, is just an attempt to overlay to get rid of, to suppress what he calls Vedana, or feelings. We have feelings if they're negative feelings which he calls Dukkha Vedana, then we move on to craving, a way to get rid of those feelings, and then that turns into thought. Thought about self, thought about the world, thought about what's going to happen in the future, and that's called in the Buddhist language Upadana. So 2,500 years ago, the Buddha was uh, very much concerned about this uh, abandonment of the body and feeling states and emotional awareness and was very also at the same time uh, cognizant of how we use um, planning, worrying, fantasizing, all the sort of inner chatter that we rely on uh, to essentially help repress the arisings of sadness or the emotions that we don't feel that confident feeling. And that's not to say that all thought is bad. Hardly. Uh, The Buddha, the Dharma, and so so much of human thought allows us to communicate allows us also to establish plans, allows us to achieve uh, wonderful, wonderful things. But the degree, the Buddha said, that thought is obsessive, repeats itself over and over again, and is always about things of which we have no control, such as worrying about the future, what's gonna happen to us, worrying about what other people think about us, worrying about, you know, how we're, we're doing in relation to other people. In other words, the more there's repetitiveness, speculation, and self in it, the more thought is no longer functional, and the more it's simply a tool to repress emotional activations to essentially distract us. So, many of us, Here's where I get to disappoint you, and as a Dharma punk, I love to do that. A lot of people come to spiritual practice, and I know this because I've been in this uh, for quite a while. I do not I not only do teaching, but I do one-on-one work with, now over the years, hundreds of practitioners. And 2 or one each practitioner comes to me with a very single agenda, which is they want a meditation that will make them happy. (laughs) And if you've been listening to anything I've said up to this point, you know that emotions uh, are not things that can be alleviated, that we cannot simply activate positive emotions in isolation. Sitting on the cushion has a role in emotion regulation, but it's not simply getting rid of or alleviating emotions, that is for what we'll be doing in the second half of the afternoon, where we'll be talking about the strategies of how to safely connect with other people to process our emotions successfully, rather than relying on shopping, binging, addictions, mood-altering substances, uh, and the sort of obsessive thinking that we fall into. Um, worse, even if it was possible that we could simply get rid of our emotions using a spiritual practice, it would be a terrible idea. All human beings need all of our emotions. Did you? I don't know if any of you saw the actually surprisingly good Disney film, Inside Out. Yeah. But it was actually a movie that I went in expecting the worst, and I was deeply, pleasantly surprised that the essential gist of the movie is that we need all of our emotional palate to be healthy, well-adapted human beings. That every emotion, from anger to sadness to loneliness to fear, plays an essential role in our happiness and our survival. If I don't have anger, it's impossible for me to confront social injustice and it's impossible for me to let you know when you're doing something that is not respecting the boundaries that I have and I need to feel safe. Without anger, you will or other people will walk all over me and I will let countless injustices continue in my life. On the other hand, if I turn anger into a story, which just repeats, repeats, and repeats, and I don't use it skillfully, then it's not skillful in any way. Uh, Loneliness is there to spur me to connect. On the other hand, if I use loneliness simply to encourage me to spend hours upon hours on Facebook posting the lunch I had (laughs) in the hopes that I'll get um, (laughs) likes, then it will not be particularly useful either. If uh, fear, I can't feel fear, it will not tell me that I'm overwhelmed, that I need to establish greater security in my life, that I need to connect with more people. If I simply, every time fear comes around, if I had a magic meditation, a mantra that I could repeat, and my fear would go away, that would actually not be a good idea. A lot of people want spiritual practice to be what's called a spiritual bypass, a way around feeling their emotions. And that's an enormous shame, not only because it, I can tell you what happens. I'm surrounded by it all the time. I meet with people uh, who have very long-term concentration meditations where they've been focusing only on the breath for 20 years. And frankly, I would rather sit next to a pit bull in a meeting then very often next to these people because they are just one uh, glance or miscommunication away from exploding. It doesn't work. Um, Furthermore, the work of Antonio Damasio and uh, Joseph Ledoux shows us that we need our emotions to make smart decisions. When Damasio did his famous studies with card players, he found that when card players had uh, the parts of their brain that read their bodies and their emotions cut off and they could do this after certain kinds of surgeries where they had to anesthetize certain parts, they no longer even though their rational logical <laughs> parts of their brain were working they could no longer make smart decisions. When uh, judges have uh, uh, what do you call it, strokes in the right hemisphere of the brain, even though they can be very logical, they still have language facilities, but they don't anymore have emotion recognition, they start making terrible, terrible, terrible decisions. They'll send innocent people to jail and they'll let murderers out, they'll, they will excessively punish some people, and they'll do. They, there's no inability, there's a complete inability to weigh in all of the wisdom that the emotional mind is signaling. Generally, what in most of our lives, our emotions are signaling, is while the left hemisphere is busy thinking and conscious and planning, the left hemisphere is what tells you you need to make more money, you need to get things done, you need to worry about this or that detail in your life. But your emotional mind is unconscious, it's weighing in in the background, sending you physiological signals that are telling you that you're not well connected, or that you haven't connected with enough people recently, or that you've done something that you know other people wouldn't approve of, or that you've done something that other people would approve of. And so your emotional mind, in the background of awareness through the body, is telling you how good a job you're doing as a social being. It starts establishing our social connections And it continues through our entire life, weighing in, letting us know through our feelings, through our tears, our joys, our happiness, our, our sudden states of anxiety and panic are letting us know that we're doing something in front of people that we haven't done before and we're worried about rejection or shaming. So, all throughout our life, we are, hopefully, if we are emotionally aware and not suppressing our emotions, we are integrating our intellectual need to achieve things in the world, get things done, become you know, successful, with our need to stay well connected. When we listen too much to our conscious language-bearing, intellectual, disconnected left hemispheres, that's when we do things that create um, the inner wars that can lead to complete stalemates in the mind. I'll give you an example, uh, such as procrastination. Somebody who uh, is at a job where they don't feel they're getting new challenges or they're not making enough money, and so their left hemisphere will come up with a plan. I'm going to get a new job and that job's going to pay me more money and they're going to give me more and more titles that, are, that sound good and I'm going to have more and more responsibilities and it'll be great. My life will be solved. And then when they get the job offer, they're stuck. They start having insomnia. They can't say yes to the job. They keep putting it off. Why is this? Well, because the emotional mind, the right hemisphere is saying, but, 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 I don't know anybody at my new job. I know all these people at my old job, and they've created a surrogate family for me. And uh, this is scaring me, the idea of moving from a place where I'm known and I'm seen and I'm emotionally cared for to a place where I have no emotional connections. That's a classic stalemate. Here's another example a poor into emotion integration. So we have a very talented photographer. She's really has a wonderful eye and she takes amazing photographs and every year in her uh, on her street, there's a photo gallery that has a local talent contest and every year the deadline comes for her to submit her really wonderful photographs where she could finally be seen and recognized and her talents not validated, and she might even wind up with a solo show if she uh, wins the contest. But every year, as the deadline approaches, she stalls. She can't pick the photographs to send into the competition. She can't write the application. She procrastinates. So the left hemisphere becomes deeply frustrated. What the hell is going on? I'm a good photographer and I should be you know, submitting my work. This makes sense. This is how I get ahead in the world. But the emotional brain, which is timeless, which doesn't... Events that happen in childhood still are just as fresh in the right hemisphere as if they happened yesterday... Suppose this woman, when she was in third grade, was asked to show her artwork to her fellow peers, her classmates, and they laughed, and she felt humiliated and ashamed. So she associates showing her work with social rejection and abandonment. So when it comes time for her to submit her work, instead of feeling confident and feeling, oh, this is a great idea, her right hemisphere which is far stronger in focusing her attention says, no way, that's where I get rejected. That's where people make fun of me, where I get humiliated. And the right hemisphere is far more powerful at pulling our attention wherever it wants. So essentially, when we don't know how to read our emotions, what happens is we become stuck. We become at war with ourselves. We become unable to take actions that would help us. We wind up staying in painful, abusive relationships. We wind up staying stuck without letting people know our needs or our skills. We become, in essence, cut off from uh, from true growth. So, fortunately, part of the practice is that we can... Use meditation as a way to start the process of connecting with the emotions that we've abandoned so that we can integrate them rather than run from them so that we can actually begin to know what our emotional brains are telling us. So that's the meditation I'm going to be leading in a few moments. It's called RAIN. RAIN is an acronym and virtually all acronyms are awkward. (laughs) They almost invariably involve some word that is uh, uh, forced in that feels like it shouldn't be there. The acronym of RAIN stands for recognize, allow, investigate, and then nurture. So that's how we are going to reconnect with some of the emotions that we run from. Recognize means we become aware of when a strong emotion or an emotional state is present. Generally, it will change the way we breathe. It will create a sensation in the body. It will create a jumpiness in the mind. It will create a repetitive image, because the right hemisphere also has dominance over the images, suddenly an image will flash into the mind that we don't want to think about. And so it will pull away our focus from where we want it to be, which is generally on our thinking and our planning or on our uh, texting or on our uh, laptops. So the first thing is to simply recognize and bring your awareness to the emotion as it's expressing itself in your body, in your breath, in your mind. Now, when we recognize there's an important distinction to be made between self-soothing and self-numbing. Self-soothing means to get as comfortable as you can. There are some emotions that are so overwhelming that if you're in an uncomfortable state, they'll just completely just be too much. I worked with somebody who had a sudden death. Uh, he was in a relationship. His partner died. And to grieve was too overwhelming for him to do in most settings, except if he went to um, this beach in uh, Brooklyn called Fort Tilden, which is uh, a very nice uh, beach. And he would go there, and the sensations of the sun and the sand and being surrounded by the sound of the waves coming in created just enough of a buffer, a self-soothing set of sensations that he could grieve and mourn the loss. Doing it alone or with, you know, in an apartment or was too much, the grief was too strong. So sometimes in life, if we're, we're dealing with very, very painful emotions, we might want to recognize that and first make sure that we're as comfortable as we can be and, you know, just fully creating the most relaxed state in the body. Self-numbing, on the other hand, is when we try to get rid of our emotions. That's when we start to feel something, and we look around, we distract ourselves, we go into habitual thoughts, we try to figure out, what am I going to have for lunch? We, we start to plan the rest of the weekend or whatever. So it's totally okay when there's a painful emotion present to feel... Know that it's there, and then make yourself really comfortable. Ask yourself how you can, uh, you know, make your clothes feel comfortable. How you can adjust your seat. But trying to when that when the mind tries to pull you away, that's when you you move from self soothing into self numbing. Naming if you if a name or a label comes up very quickly is very healthy. So if you know oh anger, sadness, grief, loss, frustration, if you really uh, can uh, name it, that's very helpful in developing emotion uh, recognition. And studies by Pennebaker shows that uh, it's a very successful tool in integrating uh, the somatic experience. The Buddha talked and in so many Buddhist traditions talk about the process of labeling. So labeling is very healthy to do if you want to do it, but you don't have to. Simply recognizing that there's an emotion present, finding it in the body or noticing the image that it's associated with. Allowing means not pushing away and allowing the emotional experience to continue. So if you start feeling anger and it starts in the chest allowing it to spread to the arms or vice versa. If it starts in the arms and the shoulders and you want to be with anger then allowing it to spread elsewhere in the body. Allowing the emotion to travel, to move, not cutting it off, not walling it off, allowing the emotional expression to continue to the point where you know you almost can sometimes maybe feel yourself There's like this energy coursing through the body and contractions maybe. Just don't cut it off. And then I is investigate. When you're fully in the emotional experience, take a survey of your entire internal experience. Note what kind of thoughts does the left hemisphere toss up to want to distract you. What's the breathing when we're angry? What is happens to the toes and the fists? What kind of um, feeling states are in the viscera, the stomach, the chest, the throat? What's going on? When I'm angry, really become a friend of anger or sadness or joy or loneliness. And really, instead of running from it, as we so often do, become cognizant of it. We can use questions at the stage to help us really connect and feel emotions such as, what do I really need right now? How does this feel? How can I make you feel safe? And then we turn those questions into the final part of the puzzle, nurture. The left hemisphere, instead of trying to get rid of the storytelling mind, instead of trying to distract us from the emotions, it instead becomes apparent of the emotional mind and says, how can I make you feel safe? What do you need? How can I make you feel that you can express yourself without being cut off? Um, I care about you. I care about my suffering. Any phrase that allows us to stay with and make the emotion feel mirrored, feel seen, rather than abandoned, uh, is the nurturing process. In this way, insight practice allows us to complete the loop. If you remember back to the very first things I said, the child running to the parents, seeking mirroring, the mother or the father that would acknowledge the emotional state that's present and see it and essentially naturalize it. When we, in our RAIN practice, we naturalize, we say, it's okay, I see that you're there, I care about you, I'll take care of you, we're giving that emotion what it's been seeking all of our lives that we've been running from these feelings, which is simple recognition. That's most deeply what human beings need. We don't need to be fixed, solved, told what to do. We don't need to solve our emotions, we don't need to figure out how to make our emotions go away. We simply need to see our own emotions and then to express our emotions to someone who will take the time to listen and witness them for us as well. So, let's give it a shot. Find a really comfortable seated position. And for any meditation that involves insight, which is, insight is where we're not necessarily keeping an anchor or an object in mind. We're actually having a much more fluid awareness. It's important to be less (coughs) fixated on... uh, very, very often we can be caught, caught up in the story of staying rigidly upright and uncomfortable or whatever we've turned our meditation into. Really find a comfortable seated position where your head is nicely balanced on your shoulders. If at any point during the meditation you feel physically uncomfortable, as in not an emotional. Uh, state but actually your back starts hurting or you start noticing that there's something uh, just uncomfortable in the legs figure out what's the quietest, slowest way so that I won't create a sound that will distract anyone how can I uh, how can I shift my position without creating any distracting sound You really want yourself to be comfortable in this practice. Um, It's impossible to be self-nurturing if you're in a lot of physiological discomfort or it's very difficult. So, waiting until we get to our seats and then closing the eyes and take a moment to just set an intention to put aside any plans about the rest of the day or any thoughts that are not about what. well, let's just say put aside any planning for now. Because actually I am going to use thought to activate an emotion. So, what I'd like you to do is bring to mind a uncomfortable interpersonal experience that's happened recently or not too long ago so that it's still something that's fresh and feels disappointing. For the point of this practice if there's a really absolutely triggering experience best not to use that one If you've been through an extremely painful breakup or something that is just too triggering, let's not use that, but something that was irritating or disappointing. And you'll notice that I'm using a negative emotion because most of us find it very easy to be with and stay with our positive emotions, but when we start to feel disappointed, angry, or sad... Then what we do is, if we're angry, we go into resentments rather than feeling. So, Or if we're sad, we'll go into something to make ourselves feel happy. If we're lonely, we'll put on Facebook. So what we want to do is instead bring to mind an image of an interpersonal experience that was activating someone who we had a confrontation with, a conflict, or didn't show up for us someone who's incessantly demanding without seeing our own needs and stress So hold that image and then let's see if we can if we're not feeling anything clearly yet just hold a single image of the person and ask yourself how does it feel how does it feel not to be seen how does it feel not to be cared about how does it feel to be harangued? How does it feel to be rejected? Any, don't be too focused on the words, just use whatever question that might start to activate some feelings. and what we want to do is gradually feel awareness lowering from the image in the mind and start like we're in an elevator going down down into the throat, the chest, the belly, feeling the shoulders and the arms and just at first when we Welcome emotions, because we've spent so many periods of our lives at times just running from them. They might be a little bit slow to come out. They've been essentially like hunted animals. They're scared. But see if you can bid it to come out. The vulnerable feelings that go back through time immemorial, back to our earliest experiences. The yearning to be seen or cared for, loved, appreciated, that hasn't been met. The feelings of being trampled on. And we're not looking for a story so much as a tightness in the belly or contraction in the chest. Feeling of the neck muscles almost strangling or cutting off a feeling in the face muscles of an emotional expression, perhaps a softness or something around the eyes that indicate the presence. <clears throat> And again, this might take a while. So we're just introducing the practice and it might be that you'll need to, at home or when you're really activated, practice this. But to the degree that any feeling, no matter how small, is present. See if you can welcome it. Allow it. Don't repress. Don't push it away. Soften the arms and the shoulders, and anything that might tighten as resistance against emotions. Just. <coughs> and you can even repeat a phrase such as Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're safe, welcome. Investigate while any feeling state is present, any emotion is present. Investigate the experience of being with this emotion that very often we've disconnected from the breath, what expression. disappearing with facial muscles. How does the body feel? Even noticing the times that the mind, (coughs) rather than staying present, wants to run away, To disconnect, to find something else, to not be with. can start adding some questions. Questions are very useful. They don't generally turn into obsessive thinking. Just questions to ask the emotional mind, the emotional body, how can we be How can we make it feel safe? How can we make it feel seen? Or just a very simple reassuring, I care about you. I won't abandon you right now. I won't drop you. I'll stay with you. You're not alone. I see your suffering. I care about my suffering. I care about my needs. If we might think of emotions, as timeless energies going all the way back to the earliest years of our lives. Timeless needs to be seen, to feel safe, to not be dropped or abandoned, to not be needlessly punished, to not be ridiculed, to not be alone. How can we start this process of making these deep, authentic, very, very human needs feel safe and feel heard? So at this point, if the image is still present that you've been holding to activate the emotional experience, just let it go. And bring to mind an image of someone that you feel close to or you feel safe with. If no one comes to mind, think of either a place that you feel really safe or a skill, an activity that makes you feel present and safe. Some people drawing or gardening or playing an instrument or you might have an image of someone who you admire or the image of someone who Is a friend that you've cultivated, that you feel safe to express your experience, someone who won't judge or criticize? And it takes the mind far longer to sink in neurally positive reflections than fear. So really hold in the mind, a positive image of connection, love, or a place we feel safe and supported, or an activity that makes us feel deeply present and connected and just hold whatever image as a way both to address the mind's innate negativity bias and also to balance off the practice which we purposely welcomed difficult emotional experiences to balance it off with recognition of that which is positive in life. Shortly I'm going to ring the bowl and as usual when you hear the sound look at the ground and just integrate sight into the embodied awareness that we've once again restored so that we don't use sight to distract the mind push all of the body and the breath and awareness into the background So we're now heading into the home stretch of the day, and uh, already we've covered early on the uh, importance of understanding the role that emotions play in psychological health and how to connect with Emotions using RAIN practice, and we also discussed some of uh, choiceless awareness can be used as well. And then uh, after lunch, we heard about uh, the importance of separating, again, the story that masks the true uh, emotional somatic expression of our core spontaneous uh, feeling states and The role that forgiveness practice can play in helping us um, uh, be with uh, anger, sadness, is to be able to separate out the story, and there's techniques to allow us to begin the forgiveness practice, which is a practice it takes. It doesn't happen in one sitting. It takes a long time, and Kathy uh, led us through what is a, a very... Uh, I think useful uh, traditional, important practice of one forgiving ourselves uh, forgiving ourselves for the time we 've unwittingly or caused harm to others, and then um, being starting the process of letting go of the story of uh, anger and victimization so that we can go about the even more essential task of. Uh, healing the emotions that are, have been lingering beneath or pushed to the side by our resentments. Um, and so now, the interpersonal work. One of the uh, most important things to understand about the role that other people play in our life emotionally is that disclosing heals and keeping secrets causes suffering. I can't say it any more clearly than that, whether we follow the work of Pennebaker or at all. Um, there's so much now solid, not only um, empirical research and clinical research, but I can tell you there's anybody who's worked in the field of one on one therapeutic alliance can tell you uh, the bulk of the healing that comes about in any form of interpersonal work is when somebody has the opportunity to push past their expectations of abandonment, rejection, judging, intolerance, and is given the permission and, in fact, the encouragement to express, not just verbally, but through all of the means available to them, their voice, their tears, their body language, their, um, their creative expression, all their pain, suffering, disappointment. And um, there's so much interesting... Uh, research. I'm not going to give you a lot of it, but just some. Uh, Anita Kelly, a psychologist at Notre Dame Notre Dame, showed that um, the perhaps the single greatest causal factor in anxiety and depression is concealment, the inability to connect with other people and express feeling states. Non-verbal emotional states. James Pennebaker at the University of Texas showed that it uh, not only compromises our immune system because the more we withhold, the more cortisol we produce, which produces red blood cells but not white blood cells, and which causes, in turn, hypertension. Um, interestingly enough, one of uh, television greats Vince Gilliam, the guy who did Breaking Bad, said that uh, the key to any good television show is a main character keeping a secret, but that in life he thinks it's the most painful thing you can possibly do. Um, withholding, not disclosing, but withholding our Secret disappointments, our shames, our embarrassments, our desires, our needs. Um, What happens is the brain begins to fight with itself, which creates something called cognitive overload. Um, The right hemisphere of the brain yearns to have its needs. It's emotional activation seen. That's what we start out in life with. And we never lose that desire to be seen by others. Yet the left hemisphere of the brain, the part that just wants to go about uh, following goals, completing tasks, and carries the victimization stories and the anger stories that dissuade us from actually revealing our true needs, um, says, "No, no, no. I can't express this. This will lead to just another form of rejection, and parts of the right hemisphere as well can be terrified of revealing and disclosing. The problem is is that the emotional brain, uh, the fast circuits, as Kahneman shows in his wonderful book, "Thinking Fast and Slow," the emotional brain takes about one-tenth of a second for its circuits to be completed. One of those circuits is the vagal vagus nerve, which expresses our emotional states on our face, and our breath, and our body language. It takes about a tenth of a second to do that, but it takes about a a half a second for our thoughts to go, oh no, I don't want people to see the fact that I'm sad, Uh, even though somebody's asked me how I'm doing, and I've habitually said, I'm doing fine. I don't, I don't want them to see my sadness, so I'm going to create a corrective smile or a confident look on my face so that they'll all go away and won't ask me anymore. There's, in other words, in that period of time between the tenth of the second where authentic emotional expression has sent its impulses to the facial muscles and the half a second where it takes us to override that, and say, no, I don't want. There's four-tenths of a second between those two where the truth very often will be revealed. And guess what? It turns out the fast circuits of the brain, your right hemisphere can see when somebody else is not being authentic with you. So if somebody else says they're fine, but they're signaling that they're not fine, intellectually, your thought circuits might not be fast enough to pick it up, but your emotional circuits will tell you that there's a disconnect between what somebody is saying and what they're actually feeling. It creates stress because if I'm concealing, I have to do three or four things at once just to simply get by. For instance, suppose I had... um, Stage anxiety while I was talking with you, I actually don't at this particular conjunction, but if I did, and I didn't want you to know that, if I wanted to appear confident, what I would have to do would be the following: I would have to one be aware of the sensations of the, of anxiety, the clutching in the chest, the you know the gulping of air, the sort of slight uh, dizziness, the jumpiness of mind, then I would have to push those expressions down and replace them with a facial expression that, uh, and a body language that appeared to be confident. At the same time as doing that, I would have to monitor your faces to see if you could tell that I was not being authentic with you. And this is before I've even said a damn thing. That's what Dan Wagner, the, the wonderful psychologist of Harvard who wrote the groundbreaking book, White Bears, showed that the moment we try to, disclose, to not r- reveal, to, the moment we start withholding from other people, we increase cognitive overload exponentially. Not only that, but cog- withholding freezes emotional <laughs> development. The psychologist Evan Ember Black showed that children who have been told by their parents to, withhold, to keep secrets from teachers or from other family members, for instance, a child who has discovered that their parent is uh, committing adultery, or the child who's been told by their parent not to reveal their shaky financial status, any child that has been told not to reveal, Imber Black studies show that it's at that moment that the child freezes emotional development and stops being able to make true authentic friendships in school and begins to experience setbacks in their, in their uh, social development in terms of how many risks they'll take with other people. So, in withholding, in keeping back our emotional states from other people, not only do we create cognitive overload, in other words, we add a significant amount of stress which hampers our ability to uh, perform, Well, but we also begin to uh, walk down the terrible path of emotion dysregulation. Withholding activates anxiety and panic attacks because the very act of emotional suppression, when the emotion starts to return, the left hemisphere tries desperately to pull awareness away from the sensations of sadness or anger or there's something wrong going on in our personal life and tries to focus on something else but meanwhile the right cingulate of the brain which is the emotional attention circuits pull awareness back so there's this what we call anxiety is simply a battle between the left and right circuits one circuit saying I don't want to feel or think about this unpleasant event I just want to get through my day And the other circuits, the emotional circuits, going, oh no, you don't get off that easy. I'm going to bring or remind you of this again and again. So it creates this emotional back and forth. The undisclosed uh, not only creates dysregulation, but it maintains that childhood fear that whatever we don't feel confident of expressing or communicating, we believe that we will be judged. It keeps that idea in the mind that uh, it's valid for us to not reveal because the expectation of judgment is true. In other words, there must be a reason I'm not disclosing. What's that reason? Well, because people will judge me. In fact, we never ever test the hypothesis we simply uh, believe it. For example, um, there's that old Persian story about the guy who um, every day uh, goes outside of his house and um, fires off a gun, I think it is, a couple of times, and the neighbor goes, for crying out loud, why do you do that? And the guy says, well, keeps away the lions. And his neighbor goes, but there hasn't been lines in this area for decades. And the guy goes, see, it's working. (laughs) But that's actually what we do all the time with the undisclosed. We don't reveal it, and therefore it justifies our underlying belief that if we did reveal it, we would be uh, rejected, abandoned, shamed, or ridiculed. In order to see if it's true, we have to stop Living in our defended modes where we don't reveal the, uh, the sort of unexpected emotional states. Most of us are pretty good when we're asked how you're doing. Most of us feel confident in saying fine, or if there's something really good saying, oh yeah, I had a great weekend. At worst, we can feel confident in saying something that other people say, complaining about the weather or I should have turned this off. Okay. So, uh, when the the undisclosed starts to return, it causes insomnia and a spike in addictive behaviors. When people start to... uh, Addiction is generally an attempt to regulate emotions without requiring other people, so to the degree that we've been disappointed in our lives by how, well can, by how well other people will tolerate our emotions and our painful experiences, if we are taught by our family structures or the institutional experience to expect rejection and intolerance, we will turn to either add, addictive substances or to process behaviors as a way to regulate those emotions. So some people will shop when they feel powerless or unimportant in their work lives. Some people will eat when they feel lonely. Essentially, this is because at some point in our life we've been informed that that people in our family structures or in the, the places we grew up didn't want to hear us express those emotional states. So, as I say in 12 step program, you're only as sick as your secrets. The key is revealing them. Uh, the University of North Carolina research of 331 men and women found the significant key in well being and health was those who had, and this was more important than good genetics, more important than wealth, more important than anything was those who had disclosing relationships, were by far and away had the reduced mortality rates. Yale, um, they did a study of over one, 1,100 students, and 50 years later, they tracked them down, and those who found the ones with positive relationships had this, the lowest rates of cancer. Disclosure alleviates stress. In the Sigalavada Sutta, the Buddha said, a real friend tells you their secrets and listens to yours in confidence, doesn't abandon you, and makes sacrifices for you. In the Rahula Sutta, which is the name of the Buddha's son, the Buddha told his son, any secret thought or inclination that causes any suffering should simply be confessed. And by confession, he doesn't mean it, and no offense, but not the Catholic sense of going to a priest. The Buddha was talking about going to someone who's friendly, tolerant, who won't pass judgment, who will simply listen. Given how important it is for us to disclose our experiences, our traumas, our emotional woundings, and our difficult emotions, you might wonder why we don't do it too often. And I would suspect, because if you look at the four forms of human anxiety that we experience over the course of life, almost, except for one, almost all of those anxieties involve the fear of being rejected by other people. The first human anxiety experienced by infants is annihilation. The child knows how vulnerable it is, and that it could be wiped out of existence. But then the mother or the parent or the caretaker swoops in and restores a sense of security. And so how does the child respond? But its anxiety moves to what's called separation anxiety. It no longer fears annihilation. It fears being separated from the mother or caretaker. Then at a certain point, the mother... Uh, has to naturally over time relinquish some of her caretaking duties, and the child is introduced to school. and so the child begins to experience my favorite anxiety. I'm a New York Jew, so I get to have my favorite anxiety. That's, <laughs> we all claim our favorite anxieties in high school. no, we don't. but uh, is uh, neurotic anxiety. Neurotic anxiety is the fear that other people will see something in me, some part of my personality, that will lead them to abandon and reject and socially exclude me. If you don't know what that feels like, I would be amazed, because to me that defines all of my high school and college years and well into my 30s. The fourth is decompensation. The fear that we will fall apart and not be able to mentally put ourselves back together in a pleasing way that other people will accept us. Mm -hmm. So, you can see just how much human anxiety and fear revolves around how well accepted and connected we are to other people. So, the sad, ironic uh, human condition is that even though our entire health and well-being is absolutely conditioned upon our ability to connect at the same time our greatest woundings and suffering comes from attempts to connect and being rejected and therefore we wind up spiraling in an impossible unwinnable situation where we need connection yet as we get closer to the point of seeking it the fear of rejection kicks in and we seek other alternative ways to regulate the emotions other than authenticity. So what we're going to be working on as we move into the interpersonal section is that um, all human beings need uh, three things. This starts out from infancy, and it goes throughout, the again, the entire course of our life, it doesn't change. We need, in our interpersonal experience, one, proximity and attunement, which means somebody who is willing to stay present, to maintain focus, to make eye contact, and to give us a space that is uninterrupted. Two, we need... Sympathy, which is somebody who can listen to the story that we say and, in essence, show that they've listened and have gotten the content to a certain degree by being able to repeat back or signal in some way that they get the challenges that we face. That's sympathy. And three, empathy. Empathy is the nonverbal expression of feeling another person's suffering or their emotional states, and it's expressed through generally facial expressions and body language. It's not expressed verbally. So when you come to me, the first thing you are hoping for, whether you realize it or not, is you want me to stop and pay attention and to maintain my body in such a way that I signal that I'm present for you and that I'm taking your needs seriously enough that I'm dropping everything that I'm focusing on. The moment I start texting or pulling my attention away or cutting you off, I am abandoning your needs, I am cutting short everything that you're seeking. The second thing you need is sympathy, which is the ability to say something that's happened to you and me to be able to signal that I've heard. What you do not need is for me to tell you what to do or figure out or solve the situation that you're in. If you do need that, you would tell me that. We all believe, especially we men, tend to believe that it is our job to fix and solve because at some point we were informed by other men that it's our job to get rid of other people's emotions and the simplest way is to explain what the other person should do so that they don't feel the way they do. So, for instance, very many people will come uh, to somebody and they'll say, I really don't like my job, my boss is a pain in the neck and then the other person might say, well, you should tell them to fuck off! They don't deserve you. <laughs> Tell them the fuck off. Who the fuck? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> get a new job. You do good. Get a new job. P- put a resume together. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so obviously that's not what we need. What we need is somebody to sympathetically acknowledge that they've heard the challenges that we're facing without solving, without fixing, without even, I know this is going to sound strange, but without even cheering us up. One of the amazing things I've seen from my work teaching at a hospice training organization and uh, the people I've visited at hospices is that there's this human belief that when other people are experiencing painful emotions, loss, grief, sadness, that the most important thing to do is to um, somehow uh, cheer the other person up. When somebody's lost an important figure to say... um, Oh, well, at least he got to travel to France. Or at least he got to live a long life. And actually, very, very few people need to hear that. (laughs) If they do, they will ask for it. When friends lose or go through really painful emotional breakups, it's very easy in our culture to fall into the hallmark card syndrome of saying well there's other fish in the sea you're too good to be out there alone somebody else will be available that's not what they need i know you might want we might want to deeply believe that in cheering people up we're performing some valuable service in fact all we're doing when we cheer someone up or fix try to fix ourselves is we're basically emotionally saying I don't have the capacity to be here for you in your emotional state. So really, the, even though it might seem that it's skillful and it might, on a conscious level, be motivated by what seems to be uh, good, solid, uh, healthy intentions, it doesn't do the real healing work Of staying present and listening and just creating a safe space. Now this is not to say that it's easy. It's actually very difficult at times to hold space for someone who is activated in pain. And very often if we feel really so strongly compelled to say something to alleviate someone's pain we might ask. But in my experience from my work, um, the bulk Of the healing process doesn't come when I try to cheer someone up or when I uh, try to, if I ever try to fix, what comes from the healing is wow, I hear how that sounds really so painful, I hear what you're trying to get across, and I just want you to know I'm taking that in. And when some people, when somebody feels that they are really deeply heard, that limbic resonance, that mid-brain connection where they, their tone of voice and somehow my tone of voice or facial expressions or body language in some small way syncs up, suddenly the miracle of human emotional healing happens. The, the processing of emotions begins. The other person, in the deepest implicit levels of the mind, begins to understand that they're not alone. That their feelings are not unique, that they're not experiencing stuff, something that's personal, but in fact, they are in an emotional or in an experience that is known by others. It's not their fault. And that, no matter how much you try to say that, it doesn't carry any weight. But if you express that through the way we connect on the nonverbal level, it. Um, handles all the work. So we all need, according to Dunbar, about five people who can do this. The uh, bad news is that most of us don't have five people that we can go to with our emotions and can uh, can hear them without fixing, solving, turning away, stonewalling, which means losing interest, or criticizing. So in adult life, I think that far more than any other uh, adult human um, challenge, this challenge of learning to, to state our needs, state what we're really seeking, which is simply someone to listen and someone to empathize if that's available to them, uh, is for me the most uh, constantly um, undernourished, practiced Uh, but it's, I think, the most, actually, it's at the epicenter of human well-being and emotional health. Now, a lot of us will have the experience of, um, at times, finding, listening to other people's emotional experience overwhelming. I do it pretty much all day long. I can give you a few secrets. Um, The first is, is that Uh, Most people are emotionally contagious, which means they pick up other people's full emotional states, which is not necessary because when they listen to somebody talking about something painful, they allow their entire bodies to become stressed out and tight. And that, over the course of the day, if you work in a healing profession, is overwhelming. So I don't do that. I actually when I'm listening to somebody, and generally there's at least four or five people I meet with for an hour every day, uh, the work is to keep my stomach relaxed, my breath relaxed, my shoulders relaxed, those three areas, stomach, shoulders, breath. But my face will maintain eye contact. I'll hear the story and I will try to visually express an emotion that matches what I'm hearing. So, in doing that, by keeping my body relaxed, I'm not picking up, over the course of the day, all of the overwhelming stress uh, that will exhaust me by the end of the day, but I am attuned, I am empathetic, I am sympathetic, I am meeting their needs, because I also don't need to figure out all the time how to solve what's going on, what I'm first doing is paying witness to somebody else's suffering, and as much as I can, using as many tools to validate, to normalize their experience, and then to explore um, both how um, they could go about expressing those needs to other people where they're not, and to talk about the challenges that they're facing. It's amazing to me in uh, what I've seen over the years how people will desperately try to reveal what they haven't disclosed using any other tool other than simply learning to go to another person and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. One of the common things I've heard is uh, uh, in couples where there's not fidelity going on and one couple has cheated they will leave their phone out or talk to the one person that they unconsciously know will spread the word back to their partner because the pain and the emotional upheaval of withholding and not keeping and keeping secrets is so painful that unconsciously the, the need to reveal and to disclose is so strong that they'll go to they'll go to a roundabout way of revealing rather than simply um, uh, being present. So, relaxing the body, naming what's present. So, I find, especially in difficult conversations, um, simply saying what I hear is a lot of um, anger, or frustration. Does that sound right to you? Am I getting? Am I hearing what you're? Or does that feel off? In doing that, actually, it helps the other person being heard, and it actually helps establish the bond between me and someone else. Um, I also have an equanimity practice, which is the reflection and meditation based on the Buddha's core idea that at the end of the day, no human being can ever alleviate another human being's suffering. The most we can do is try to be present and try to create a safe container for them to express their activations. But I can't alleviate your suffering. All I can do is be present. And if I put that extra weight on my shoulders that it's my responsibility to completely alleviate your suffering, then any healing work will become unbearable for me. And plus, uh, you need more than just me, and I need more than just you. So if I'm trying to alleviate one person's suffering on my own, I'm already making the mistake of, I'm already misunderstanding how healing goes about. It's a team practice, it requires more than one person. And at the end of my day, I always do a meditation practice to um, relieve the stress that's a bit, that's, any stress that's still built up over the course of the day.